The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. We'll open your Bibles to the book of Romans again. The book of Romans, chapter 1. I want to confess as we uh, turn in this really important book to study God's Word that I, I keep feeling week after week when I'm studying Romans like a person would feel who'd gotten all the way up to the cash register of some store intending to buy something and realized I don't have enough money. And that feeling that I am, I'm in a position with people standing behind me that I, I, can't, I can't deal with what's before me and I keep seeing Sunday coming and I, want, I just want five more hours with this text. This has been a blessing to me beyond measure over the last weeks to dive into this book. I am incredibly excited about what's ahead before us. And as I've said before, we're in no hurry. Uh, Mike Walgy told me this morning, don't rush through this. So we won't do that. Romans chapter 1, and let's pick up in verse 1, even though the sermon today will deal with verses 3 through 7. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was born of a, as a descendant of David, according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ to all who are beloved of God in Rome. Called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus of Nazareth is the most famous person in the history of the world. He's the most important person who's ever lived. He's the object of more music than anyone else. He's the subject of more poetry than anyone who's ever lived. More books have been written about him than anyone else. More money has been spent for his name than anyone else. More people have been martyred in his name than anyone. More art has been devoted to him than anyone. And more controversy has been launched about him than anyone who's ever lived. Jesus Christ is the determining crossroads in every man's life. God was very clear that every knee and every head would bow at the greatness of redemption accomplished in Jesus Christ. That bowing and that humbling and that reverence will happen in this life by submission to his lordship, by salvation, by grace, through faith, or it will happen on the portals of hell as people claim, I was wrong, he is who he says he was. What one does with and what one does about Jesus Christ determines his or her eternal destiny. There is no more important person than Jesus. I could say in history, but I would say because of the resurrection, even alive today. And to the Christian, there is nothing 
more interesting than our Lord. Nothing more interesting than our Savior. No one more interesting than our Redeemer. No one more precious than our friend. No one more curiously interesting than our high priest, our intercessor, our God in flesh, Jesus Christ. Christian faith works differently than every other religion in relation to its leader. Our relationship to Jesus Christ is different than Islam to Muhammad or Buddhist to the Buddha. A.E. Garvey writes this, In no other religion is the position of the founder comparable with that of Jesus in Christianity. Confucius was the editor of ancient classics and the interpreter of ancestral wisdom of his people. The Buddha had discovered the secret of salvation for himself, and then he imparted it to others, but he did not offer himself as the Savior, as each man must follow his own path of deliverance for himself in Buddhism. Muhammad was the prophet of Allah, in whose name and by whose authority he taught and ruled, but he claimed no more intimate relation to God. But Jesus is himself the object of the Christian faith as the divine Savior and Lord. He not only reveals God's fatherhood, but he himself, the Son alone, knowing God and known of God as no other man can be, is so uniquely qualified by his nature for his function. He does not discover and then impart to others a way of salvation, a secret of salvation, a salvation resulting from man's efforts, but in his death and in his rising again, he recognizes and realizes on behalf of man, a salvation which men receive and possess by faith in him. He does not present a law, a standard, an ideal above and beyond his own character, but is in himself his character as the standard. Here, founder and religion are one as nowhere else. Garvey is so right. We worship Jesus Christ. He's not a part of our religion. He's not a part of our lives. He's the point of our worship and the point of our lives. Now, if that sounds like hyperbole, let me just say as clearly as I can, it is impossible for me this day, and were I to have a thousand tongues to sing, it would be impossible to overstate the importance of the person of Jesus Christ. It's not hyperbole. We need only read these opening seven verses of the book of Romans to realize that it's not hyperbole. We calibrate our lives and our position before God by our evaluation of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done on behalf of those who would believe. Paul's writing a letter in the book of Romans to a group of believers who collected in Rome. This is, interestingly enough, a church he didn't plant. Most of the letters are written to churches that he had an association with, had spent some time with, or that he had planted himself, not the book of Romans and not the church at Rome. These were believers who had who'd heard the gospel and responded and basically formed their own church. Paul had heard about their position in Rome, their evangelistic endeavors in that great city, the center of the world, and he longed to go to Rome. It was his life's goal to go to Rome to minister, not just to see the sights, not just to see the Colosseum. He wanted to go and spend time with these believers. Paul's passion to go be with other believers who shared their faith in his Lord, whom he had never met who were a different race and color than him. These were Italians. He was a Jew from Tarsus. 
entirely different culturally, different language, and yet he said, your love for Christ brings my love for Christ into a perfect triangle that draws us to the top together. Letter to the Romans is, without question, the most comprehensive encapsulation of gospel truth and gospel theology in the whole Bible. As we've already noted in verse 1, the gospel means God's good news. Evangelium means good news, news that's, that's attractive, news you want to hear, news that's good in light of bad news and in light of our sinful state, worthy of damnation, as we'll see in just a few verses. Under the wrath of God from our birth, God, in gracious condescension, at the sacrifice of His own beloved Son, says there's good news. You don't have to bear the wrath of God. You don't have to go to hell. You can enjoy heaven forever with God, but it has nothing to do with your works, your merit, anything you can do to climb up to see Him. It's, it's been accomplished for you. It's a gracious gift. It's good news. We have to connect then the end of verse 1 with the beginning of verse 3. Verse 2 is an aside. Verse 2 is the parentheses. Verse 2 is a footnote. And we looked at that last week. It's the connection of the gospel to the Old Testament. We studied that in some depth last week. But the sentence without that little parentheses really reads, I'm set apart for the gospel of God concerning His Son. Don't miss that. The good news of God, the gospel of God, concerns His Son, Jesus. Then in verses 3 to 7, he begins that explanation of the point that will extend for 16 more chapters to prove that Jesus is the good news of God. That concerning His Son is the phrase that ought to roll off our lips. Our lives should concern His Son. Our affections should concern His Son. Our money should concern His Son. Our affections with, with our family should concern His Son. He is to have first place in everything because God's good news is His Son, Jesus. For our study this morning, we're going to look at these first, uh, this first section, verses 3 through 7, and Lord willing, be able to work through it because it's a package and it's a unit, and ask and answer a simple question. What makes Jesus God's good news? So Paul wants to set apart from the very beginning. What makes Jesus God's good news? The good news of God concerning His Son. Well, okay, what makes Him the gospel? What makes Him the good news? Now, that good news is the gospel, and let's say it as clearly as possible. Jesus is the gospel. Yes, the gospel involves response. Yes, the gospel involves three parts. Fact, uh, facts to believe, three parts. Facts to believe, the theology about those facts, and response to the theology of those facts. That's true. But at the centerpiece of those facts is Jesus. At the centerpiece of that theology is Jesus. And the response we make to the gospel is to love and obey and submit our need to the lordship of Jesus. What makes Jesus then God's good news? Verse 1 tells us that it's God's good news and it's concerning His Son in verse 3. The first answer to that question is in the first part of verse 3. It's His deity, His godness, His deity. Concerning His Son. Remember, we have to connect that with the end of verse 1. The good news of God concerns His Son. So the thought is the gospel of God 
is about his son, Jesus. The word gospel, evangelion, means the good news. And I think sometimes in our evangelistic efforts, the gospel doesn't sound like good news because people don't really sense and understand what trouble they're in with God. They don't sense and understand that if they were to die right now, their good works, their best efforts, their greatest intentions would earn them no traction with God the judge. He isn't great on the curve. And the challenge is every person can find someone else to whom they can compare themselves and feel better about themselves and probably to whom they can feel worse about themselves. But we all feel like we're somewhere in the middle, not as bad as some and not as good as others, and God doesn't look at us like that. God looks at us, here's the bad news that paves the way for the good news. God looks at us as rebels, as enemies, as ungodly, as wretches, as objects of his wrath. I told you a few weeks ago, as we move through the Romans, I hope you're okay with being called a few bad names. Paul is very candid in his description of us, and it's not complimentary. But because of that position that we understand before God... Then when Jesus comes, the, God, uh, the good news of God concerning his son is good news. And our evangelistic efforts sometimes fall flat because we don't get people, can I say it this way, we don't let them know how lost they are before we let them know how saved they can be. Paul identifies himself as the man who is a servant to the message of the good news in verse 1. He is not a self-promoter. He's not out promoting Pauline theology. He's out promoting Christ. The emphasis the apostle is making here cannot be overstated, overestimated. The good news concerns his son, Jesus. The gospel is more than a plan. The gospel is a person. The good news is that God became a man and died for sinners in their place as their substitute to offer us a way to be with God in heaven. The gospel of God is centered on his son. Listen, ethics are subordinate to Jesus. Theology is even subordinate to the person of Jesus. He defines what we believe. He encapsulates what we believe. He's the object of what we believe. What we believe. Some have reduced Christianity to little more than behavior modification. Doing better and trying harder to be better. That's not Christianity. Christianity, Christianity is not man self-improved. It's man debased and saved by a holy God. Now, the sonship of Jesus is going to be Paul's concern for the next two verses. We're going to dive into that together. And that Jesus is God's Son makes him co equal and coexistent with God the Father. During his trial before the Jewish leaders, the high priest demanded something of Jesus in Matthew 26. He says, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ. The Son of God. Now listen to what the high priest recognized. In Matthew 26, he says, If you are the anointed one, if you are the Christ, if you are the Messiah, then you are the Son of God, co-equal with God, and you are the offspring of the Father. Same essence. What would Jesus say to that? He said, Yes, it is as you say. But I say to all of you, in the future you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of God, the Mighty One, and coming down out of the, of the clouds of heaven. It's one of the strangest passages in the Bible. The high priest says, are you the Son of God? He says, yes, I am. I'm the Son of Man. 
What does that mean? Are you God? Yes, I am, and I'm also man. The Jewish leaders responded by accusing him of blasphemy and claiming to be God. The Jewish leaders understood for Jesus to say, I am the Son of God, meant that he was claiming to be God. Later, before Pontius Pilate, the Jews insisted, we have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the Son of God. They had it clear in their minds. Now, why would his claiming to be the Son of God be considered blasphemy? Why would it be worthy of death? Well, those leaders understood exactly what Jesus meant when he said, I am the Son of God, of the same essence, the same nature as God. The Son is God of God. He's not like God. He's not going to be a God. He is God. I was singing that song. It's really not a Christmas song, but the, the Getty song on the cross. And there's a, there's a little phrase that just captured me this last week. We've sung it tons of times here. The little phrase, fullness of God in helpless babe. Remember that phrase? Fullness of God in helpless babe. Is there a greater mystery? The creator of the universe has dirty diapers. The humiliation and humbling of God as the Son of God and Son of Man Hebrews 1.3, the sun is the exact radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his nature. Jesus was both God and man. It's always funny to kind of deal with your verbs. Jesus is both God and man. And verse 3 and 4, bounce back and forth, highlighting his humanity and highlighting his deity. And you say, well, that's just theology, Rick. Does it really matter? Absolutely it matters. If Jesus is God, it changes everything. If Jesus was who he said he is, it changes everything. He was either, as Lewis said, a madman or the incarnate God. That little phrase concerning his son points to his deity. But let's move more in verses, verse 3. Let's look at his lineage. What makes Jesus God's good news? His lineage. This concerning his son, this little phrase, who was born a descendant of David according to the flesh? Concerning his son that looks at his deity, the flesh looks at his humanity. The lineage of Jesus is crucial for understanding and substantiating his messianic identity. He could not be the Messiah unless he was in the physical bloodline of David. How do you know that? Well, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16 says this, Your house, this is David dedicating the temple, Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me, says the Lord, forever to David. Your throne shall be established forever. That means that the ultimate king of Israel, who is going to be the king of the earth and the king of the universe, must come through the line and bloodline of David. Now, I just want you to see this. Turn over to Matthew chapter 1 for a second. In the very first book, as the Spirit of God would ordain, in the very first sentence, as the Spirit of God would write, in the very first verse of the very first book of the New Testament, what's the first characteristic that we learn of Jesus? What's the first thing we find out about him? The record 
of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. What's the characteristic? The son of David. Is that clear? If he's the son of David, he has the right to be a candidate for the Messiah. And this passage is going to say he's way more than a candidate. If Jesus was not a descendant of David, he could not qualify for being the Messiah. It also speaks of his humanity. He was born of the flesh. He was really a human. He was genuinely and fully a man. Hebrews 2, Hebrews 4. He became a man so he could die. He became a man so that he could be tempted and always like us and be victorious. His lineage means it's good news of God. God made a promise, as we saw in verse 2, that a descendant would come from David and be the king of the Jews and the king of the world and the savior for all souls who would believe in him and guess who Jesus traces his lineage back to? David. What makes Jesus God's good news? His deity, his lineage. Thirdly, his resurrection. Verse 4, Who is declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, let me just pull the car over for a second. This verse is one of the most controversial verses in the entire Bible, and especially in the New Testament. It's caused some serious debates on what it really means. Why? Was Jesus declared the Son of God at the resurrection? Paul says so. However, we just read Jesus had claimed to be the Son of God all through his life. So, so who's right? Was he the Son of God before the resurrection? Paul says he was declared the Son of God at the resurrection. Jesus said, I am the Son of God over and over before he was actually killed and raised from the dead. How does that work out? Well, I think the answer is simpler than you might think at first glance. Obviously, Jesus claimed to be God's Son before the resurrection, and since being God, he cannot lie, that means he was. But... He was also the eternal son before the incarnation. Now, this is where the, the doctrine of the eternal sonship of Christ gets some theologians on one side and some on the other. Was he always the son, or was he only the son during his incarnation? Was he only submissive to the father during his lifetime? What, what, was, the son, what was the son and father relationship like? Is that eternal, or did that start when he was a baby, or did that end when he was uh, resurrected and taken back to heaven? What's well, a good question. I'm, I'm glad you asked. Theologians disagree on this, but I think there's enough biblical evidence to inform us that Jesus has been the eternal Son forever. And the best way I think we can understand that is it was the Son of God, Isaiah 53, it was the Son of God, Matthew 26, it was the Son of God in Paul and the, the Philippians, the Romans, the Galatians, the book of Revelation, it was the Son of God who would be the Lamb of God who would pay for the sins of the world. Revelation 13.8 gives us a very clear hint into the sonship of Christ and His eternal nature as that when it says that the Lamb was slain when? Before the foundation of the world. It wasn't like you know, and after Malachi, in those 400 silent years, the Trinity was having a discussion with himself. Who's, 
Who's going to be the Spirit? Who's going to be the Father? Who's going to go down and be the Son? Which person in the Trinity is going to do that? No, no, no. The Lamb of God was slain in the mind of God, in the purpose of God, in the providence of God before the world ever began. This was not a plan made up as God went along. He has always been the Son. There's an inner Trinitarian subordination that's precious, that doesn't lift one above the other, but all work in concert in the unity of God's being and the expression of His person. But that's really not the main point of this verse. The main point is something happened at the resurrection. Now, people get tripped up. He was declared the Son of God you know, at the resurrection. It really just means authenticated and announced. He said he was the Son of God. People didn't believe him. He proved he was the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead. Now, that should hearken us back to the first sermon ever preached and the accent that Peter put on the resurrection to establish the identity of Christ, the Son of God, as the Savior, as the Messiah, as the sacrifice for sin. You can follow along or you can find your way in Acts chapter 2 when Peter says in verse 22, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst. Just as you yourselves know, this man, I love this, this is not a... This is not a plan that God made on the fly. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan of God and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross. Beautiful symmetry of man's responsibility and God's providential sovereignty. He predetermined it. You're responsible. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Verse 24, but God... But God raised him up again. I love this. You killed him, but God raised him up. You tried to defeat him. God said, no way. Putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held within his power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence. For he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. By the way, there's another proof of the eternal sonship of Christ. He's always been the son at the right hand of the Father in eternity past, in our present, and in the future. Because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay in the grave. You will make known to me the ways of life. You will make, full of, uh, make, full, make me full of gladness with your presence. Brethren, may I confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. In other, in other words, David made this prophecy. Was he talking about himself? Uh, no, because he underwent decay. Verse 30, and so, because he was a prophet and he knew that God had sworn with him an oath to seat one of his descendants on the throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did he suffer, his flesh suffer decay. I have to keep going. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses, having therefore been exalted to the right hand of God, just as David said he would be, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of holiness that was going to raise him from the dead, as we'll see here in Romans. He poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore... Verse 36, this is why I read this long passage. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. 
In other words, through the crucifixion event and the rising from the dead, God made him Lord in Christ even though he had always been Lord in Christ. What does that mean? He confirmed, he authenticated that he is indeed who he says he was. The resurrection from the dead authenticates Jesus' deity. You say, how does that do that? Why would that do that? If God raised Jesus from the dead, listen, God would never raise a heretic or a false prophet from the grave. What would that do for his reputation? If he raised Jesus from the dead, he could make no louder announcement as to his identity. The Holy Spirit was involved in raising him from the dead. The marking event was the spirit of holiness. It was the holy God that did this. No heretic was raised from the dead. The Son of God. And think about this. If Jesus had not been raised from the dead, had he not rose out of that grave, think of how he would be remembered today. Ever thought about that? Had he not come out of the grave... He would have been studied as maybe a Jewish teacher of morals or, or someone with a pretty grandiose idea about himself. Or, or maybe he thought of himself as a leader who expected unrealistic and ridiculous commitments from his followers. How would we remember Jesus without the resurrection? Well, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, without the resurrection, we are of all men to be pitied. Our faith is vain, stupid. I love the title, the name of our church. Mission Road Bible Church. But if I were ever to start a church, I think I would just call it a church that loves the resurrection. I love the resurrection. He rose from the dead. We sang about that this morning. And let's say again, we'll hear it all the next month. Christmas without Easter is just a sentimental story of a baby born in a manger. But Easter without Christmas is just a sad story of a man who died. We have to remember who it was who died on the cross, that he rose from the dead. And we remember the one who died actually has lineage that qualifies him to be the Messiah. What makes Jesus God's good news? His deity, his lineage, his resurrection, fourthly, his mission. His mission. This is... This is fun. This puts you and me in the cart with Jesus and his mission. Through whom, because of him, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. Now stop right there. Notice that it says we. Now some people say Paul's talking about his Timothy or his traveling companions or Silas. Possibly. But I think he's extending that to the Romans and by proxy to you and me as well. We have received grace and apostleship. No, we're not an apostle with a capital A. We're not one of those 12 men. But apostle just means one who is sent. There's a driving force to be the evangelizing purpose of God the Father because of God the Son in that little word, apostleship. We've received grace. We've, we've received Sending outness, sending ship, apostleship. Why? To bring about, I love this, the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles. Faith, as we're going to find out over and over, obeys. Professing faith that has no atta uh, attachment to God by obeying who He is, what He said we should do, isn't real faith. James said, faith 
without works is dead. Among whom you also are called of Jesus Christ. I love his use of the plural. We have been given this. Obedience of faith. Faith goes hand in glove with obedience. Now, by the way, what distinguished Paul's ministry was that he had been specifically called by God to go to the Gentiles. After his conversion, Ananias was told by the Lord to minister to Paul. And during that conversation uh, with, with God in a vision, remember Ananias has, we just read it a few weeks ago, Ananias talks to God as God's speaking to him in this vision. First thing he says is, I don't know if I want to go talk to Paul. He, I think he wants to kill me. After he got over that, God told Ananias what Paul was being called to. In Acts 9.15, he says, But the Lord said to him, Ananias, Go, for Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. It extends the gospel of God out of Judaism. The Jewish faith was to be the Cape Canaveral for the gospel. Instead, after rejecting the Messiah, he cursed the nation. He cursed the fig tree. Galatians 1.16, Galatians 2.7, Paul continues to say, I am an apostle to the Gentiles. Ephesians 3.8, to me, he says, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. Now understand, the Gentiles means, number one, non-Jews, but it also means the nations, the world, the races, the ethnicities. We're not called to be like the Jewish nation that proselytized people to come be a part of that. And if you were a proselyte to Judaism, you were, you were a non-Jewish Jew. You didn't have the racial uh, categories of, of attachment to God like they did. The gospel's not like that. And can I say our church should reflect that too? God has some creative creative ideas about making people tall, short, dark-skinned, light-skinned, heavier, thinner, faster, slower. And in this building and in this hour, there should be no segregation before God. No ethnicity, no group is to be excluded from the gospel. Verse 7, he says to all... To all who are beloved in God, just of God, just stop right there. Paul speaks of someone who's saved as one who's loved by God. Will you just stop and take a deep drink from that fountain? Beloved of God. That's significant because in a few verses he's going to talk about those who are under the wrathful hatred of God. And in contrast to what's coming, he says, You're beloved by God. Would you just stop for a minute this afternoon and think that if you, if you love Jesus, God loves you. That good news won't make sense unless you understand the bad news that from our birth we had a stiff arm in God's face. Rebelled against His nature. We were children of wrath. Dead to God. Alive to sin. Worshipping the prince of the power of the air through our thinking, our affections, and our acting. I love that designation. 
Beloved of God. That's an underlinable phrase in your Bible. Beloved of God. In Rome, that's where Paul wanted to go. City that really ruled the ancient world. It was the city everyone wanted to go to, and for the next thousand years, it would be the center of civilization as it would slowly crumble. Notice they were saints, by the way, by calling, not saints by birth, different than the Jews. Paul had never been to Rome. Still, the gospel provides him an endearing link between he and the Romans. This should cause us to have, have a motivation, an impetus to have an endearing relationship with other believers. We don't want to be the, the church of the us for no more shut the door. We don't want to be Elijah who says, this is it, I'm the only one. We are not the only ones. We should have awakened this morning praying for the expository ministry of churches around the world, near and far, persecuted and free. And when we encounter other Christians, yeah, we defend our doctrine. Yeah, we draw very strong lines in the sand of our doctrine. And yet, if you love Christ, I mean, let's think about this. Do we really want to create enemies out of those with whom we're going to spend eternity? We should have fellowship. It's because of the gospel. It doesn't mean we have to minister together week in and week out of the church. But let's be careful. that We don't make a higher standard for our fellowship than God makes for people to go to heaven. Seems unfortunate. He longed to be with these people he didn't even know. Different race, different language. He wanted to be with them, and we'll find out why in the next passage. Note there's no break in the first sentence, that it begins in verse 1 and goes through verse 7. It's, um, it's like Paul. Paul's like that child who comes home after his first visit. So what, what's the amusement park called, Mark? Worlds of Fun? Is that what it's called? Sorry, I haven't taken you there yet. You get the little kid, he's going there, and he comes home, and he can't, he, you just can't stop him from describing everything that was fun. This ride, and he bounces that ride, and bounces this ride, and this, and cotton candy, and it just, just bubbles out of him. Paul can't even get the address out of his heart. Can't even say Paul to the Romans. Takes him seven verses because he's so bottled up, like that shaken bottle of root beer, he can't even talk about the gospel without it just leaking on his greetings to them. He actually gets into the real greeting in verse 8. As he thanks God for them, and we'll get to that next time. He could hardly take a breath as he opens his epistle without talking about the greatness of Jesus in the gospel. What comes out of you when you get proverbially poked? Are you so full of gospel truth and love for Christ that to talk to you is, is to get Jesus? To talk to you is to get his person, his character, his wonder. Listen, I'm all for giving a person a track. Have them in my briefcase. I'm all for giving a person a book. I'm all for giving people a Bible. That's great. But their first encounter ought to be, man, I don't know what's up with that guy, but that guy loves Jesus. That lady can't talk about anything but her Savior. This is what happens with Paul. When you were to talk to Paul, he just bubbled 
Christology. What makes Jesus God's good news? His deity does. He's God. His lineage does. He's connected to David. His resurrection from the dead does. No one did that by the power of the Spirit of holiness, except for his mission. Extending the gospel to the nations and to the Gentiles, and he says, do that with me. Listen, if Jesus is who this passage says he is, there are serious and there are wonderful implications and ramifications. Jesus is far too amazing and far too wonderful and far too awesome for us to learn about and encounter and walk away unchanged. How can we see who he is and then go to lunch without it being on our minds? We ought to go to lunch. And talk about our Savior. As I said, every Sunday we ought to walk out of this building, if not singing, at least saying, because we've looked at His Word, Hallelujah, what? What a Savior. I said it over and over. Jesus is amazing, and your job in life is to be amazed. If you know Him, Hallelujah, what a Savior. Wow, if you don't know Christ, what a great day you came to see Paul talk about a Savior. In a few verses, we're going to get to the fact that God has unleashed His wrath against those who have bottled up their conscience, suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. And that's, friend, that's you. But today, the, the gates of heaven are swung open and Jesus invites you and says, Come, drink and eat, and thirst and hunger no more if you come to me. Come, find forgiveness. What kind of fool would say, no, I don't want to be forgiven? What kind of fool would say, no, I don't want hope after death? What kind of fool would say, the resurrection, ha, huh, I'll take my chances with the grave and the casket? Don't be a fool. In a few minutes, our prayer room is going to be open to the right. If you want to talk about what it means to run to Christ, not walk, run to Him, there'll be people there, I'll be down front, love to talk to you about what it means that your soul is redeemed by the one who died for you, his enemy. Please don't leave the building without that issue settled in your mind and heart. Please, I would beg you, don't put it off. Don't procrastinate. You don't know how long your life is. Rick, are you trying to scare us? Absolutely. Yeah, I would be scared if my eternity was in the balance. Run to the Savior today. Lord, give us, give us the amazing response to an amazing Savior. We want to be like Paul who could not even say greetings without these explanations of why Jesus is the good news just flowing out of him. We want to be like that because we've been amazed and stand amazed in your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com.